This is Derailed Trains of Thought. I do it one more time for the peaking. This is this is Derailed Trains of Thought. It sounds like totally that. like NPR at first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna do, okay, I'll do my NPR. And this is Derailed Trains of Thought. <laughs> you might have to put that at the beginning or the end. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Welcome to Derail Trains of Thought, episode four. This is Nick Hayden, aka Rupert Lohman. And this is Timothy Deal, aka Timmy D. And how are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Nick? I'm doing good. It's finally fall again here. It was warm for a while. It's almost time to vote, so we see signs everywhere. Yeah, I'm a little jealous. Well, not of the signs. There's that around here in Virginia Beach, too. But it's for some weird reason, this week, the last week of October, is kind of warm and muggy around here, like August, high 80s, which is, does not say fall very much at all. You don't want to drink hot cider in 8 degree weather. Not really, not really. We've had some cooler weather, but this is not it. I guess, uh, I guess we might as well just dive straight into it. Yeah, I guess so. We don't have anything else to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the weather. That means it's time to move on. <laughs> uh, so our first segment is Story School. Story School is a section where we talk about some aspect of writing or filmmaking or just general storytelling that we think would be interesting to uh, discuss and hammer out. So today for Story School, I came up with an idea, which I want to kind of give a background to because I haven't really thought this all the way through yet, Tim. Um, <laughs> you've heard a little bit of it. Um, when you first described it, it made sense, So, but it's been a while since we last talked about it. So, Well, I'll go ahead and describe it for our audience like I described it for you. My idea was the moral universe, and I had this idea. I was watching Hamlet, the Royal Shakespeare um, production, done with uh, Patrick Stewart and David Tennant, which is a very good production of Hamlet. And I hadn't watched Hamlet for a, quite a while. We studied it for like a month and a half in high school, and so it kind of became my favorite Shakespeare because I knew it better than any other Shakespeare. And footnote: I would definitely would love to see just to see the interaction between Patrick Stewart and David Tennant. And it's fun that, uh, I mean, David Tennant's fabulous anyways, and it's kind of fun for a Star Trek geek um, yeah. <laughs> that there's a numerous references, you know, quotes that they use in Star Trek because they're always stealing Shakespeare in it. Uh, and, you know, and there's Picard, you know, like the undiscovered country um, <laughs> is part of, a, part of that um, to be or not to be right. soliloquy. But anyways, back on topic. I was watching and realizing that most of... I, I, one reason I like it is because so much of the plot is centered around moral issues. That the 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 moral dimension of Hamlet's life is a large dimension of the play. Now, I don't want every movie to be Hamlet because Hamlet doesn't do much but one wonder what he should do. <laughs> um, he says most of his time saying, "My father's guilty. All men are evil. What will I do about it? I'll judge him. Wait, make, I need to make sure he's guilty. Oh no, I don't have the willpower to." 
to kill him, et cetera, et cetera. But Nick, isn't your second book like that? Well, yes, I agree. <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying I don't want yeah. every movie that way. Oh, yeah. But so I was thinking, I think a lot of, and this is what I need you to help me figure out, Tim. I think a lot of stories in every medium that stick with us are those where the moral dimension is important to the characters. Not mm. that it's necessarily overwhelming, that it's the only thing, but that, well, here's an example. In fantasy, they're always talking about world building. You build your political world and your cultures and the landscape. Well, they almost never say, and make sure your moral universe makes sense. Mm. And I think good fantasy, like we'll bring up Tolkien, see he shows up almost as much as Star Wars in these podcasts. See, uh, we, we can't mention. You can't even min- go a podcast without even mentioning Star Wars. I had to do that just for you, Tim. Um, I'm not really complaining. I just think it's <laughs> funny. No, I'm not complaining either. But Lord of the Rings, the entire plot of, of the getting rid of the ring is a very moral issue. You know, every especially in Fellowship of the Ring, every time someone else encounters a ring. They wrestle with, should I use this for good or should I get rid of it? The ring becomes kind of a a method of determining the person's inner character. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's the only fantasy story I know of where they're trying to get rid of something powerful as opposed to trying to find something powerful. That's a very good point. So I was just, I was thinking through the, you know, various stories I've read that I enjoy, stories, books that stayed around for a long time. And it seems to me many of them have... They want to discuss that part of humanity that sometimes we forget about in our more secularized age. The sense that the spiritual part of man, the, the part that says things are right or things are wrong, matters. So, I don't know, Tim, any uh, thoughts just leaping off that? I have some other things I could say. but Well, I have to agree. I mean, the first thing comes to mind as far as, like you said, secularized secularized stories that don't deal with that as much. I mean, a lot of it is... It seems like a lot of artists these days are more interested in exploring just a person without... I mean, the problem that we, we have with postmodernism is that very few people can agree on a set of morals. I mean, there are certain ones, yeah, that you know you shouldn't inflict harm to others and stuff like that, uh, at least you know as far as possible. But I, I guess I do see a lot of character stories that are almost more about just a man's character and his nature, which is good, interesting stuff for stories and for art to go into too. I'm just trying to trying to think of more examples of uh, stories that I've seen recently that really dealt with you know these moral issues of you know what should I do. I, I know they're out there. I'm just trying to think of examples right now well let me give let me give you a couple examples and i another thing i meant to say is that you and i are christians and i think christians believe that every choice has a moral component Mm -hmm. not necessarily that every choice is like some earth shattering you know are you going to murder a guy or not but that even small choices move you one way or another Mm -hmm. and that sometimes one a choice for me might be bad but you make the same choice and it's wrong for you in context yeah in context and that's not to say that a certain action is by itself you know right or wrong it's that yeah like you said direction and from what i believe god has called some people to do certain actions like 
someone may be, may be genuinely called to be a vegetarian, as far as I know. I'm not. I, I like meat very much, thank you. But <laughs> some people may feel that is a, a worthwhile conviction if, you know, if they see the state of the food industry and they feel that God wouldn't be happy with it, that God may have called them to that conviction. So here's here's a couple movies, books, that I would say the moral dimension matters. And by moral, I don't, don't mean necessarily agrees exactly what I would say is right and wrong. Okay. I think... One of the reasons loss energized so many people is because it did explore these, how should people act, you know, they had this whole theme of redemption, which meant making choices to make yourself better than you were before. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, more than a lot of shows on TV, that was kind of a major thing for each of the characters. And here who I was, what do I do to make myself different? Yeah. Which, you know, some t played into the whole very spiritual ending of it, whether you liked it or not. I think Evangelion, the anime, has a lot of discussion on what it even means to be human. Morally, who am I? What should I do? On a, on a less serious note, I think even shows that, that give a kind of a quiet sense of, of just goodness or honesty. or Like, you love the Muppets, and I would, I would argue the Muppets have a moral universe. Oh yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. I remember I think Harry Belafonte, he he was very very open to his guest star appearance on the Muppet show and I remember reading that he during some of the early rehearsals he was having kind of a hard time getting in sync cuz you know working with the Muppets is kind of a it's a very different sort of atmosphere trying to just getting used to interacting with them. And one thing Frank Oz said was uh, that they have a certain innocence to them. I mean, they're the Muppet Show Muppets are a bit more they're a bit more grown up than Sesame Street Muppets. But the idea was that you can't really stay mad at them very long because there's this one song that Harry Belafonte sang on the show where Fozzie Bear kept interrupting him. He was trying to sing, um, you know, "Come, Mister Tallyman, Tally me bananas," <laughs> and and Fozzie kept interrupting, trying to bring in more props and things just getting messed up and and the scene wasn't working and. But he said, when Harry Belafonte said that once he kind of understood that, you know, there's this kind of innocence and naivete to him, that he, it was a more subdued kind of, not, you know, anger that, you know, his for his reaction as the singer, but kind of a exasperation, maybe, as, as a parent dealing with, you know, kids and stuff. And I think there's definitely a, a very mutual respect, even though, you know, Kermit and Piggy will be mad at each other for a whole episode. By the end, you know, they'll get back together and they kid each other around a lot. But in the end, they all love and respect each other as a family, in a sense. Except for maybe Sattler and Waldorf. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think actually that that clears it up a little bit for me is one purpose of writing is showing the world how it should be. Yeah. And I think we've, there's... We've talked about this a little bit before. And I think I think there's a certain collection of shows and books where the moral universe is not talked about like in Hamlet. It's just how things are. Yeah. It just a, it's an assumed background. And, you know, it's like reading um, Anna Green Gables. There's just so much goodness exudes from that book. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read it. I've never actually read it, but I've, well, having four sisters, <laughs> I've seen the films multiple times. Actually, I have not actually read the whole thing. Natasha had an audio book, and I listened to about the last half. I thought, man, this is good stuff. Yeah, it is. It, I have to admit, it is one of my favorite chick flicks. I think I was resistant to it at one point, but after a while, I mean, the characters are just great. And just and... the whole world she exists in. Mm -hmm. is, uh, and I, I think 
I guess in my own writing, that's something I would like to capture. You know, like you mentioned, my second book tends to capture this in a very Hamlet sort of way, in a very uh, overt, let's discuss the morality of things. But I think there's as much or more room for the presupposing those big capital-lettered words like honesty and truth and goodness and justice and stuff. And I think the moral universe that you capture in your story, as as you're describing it, reflects a lot on the author's own worldviews and perspectives. The fact that, we'll go back to the mother's example just real quick, that, you know, that it's about this joy and creativity and mutual respect and love for each other, I think says a lot about Jim Henson's vision and about how he saw the world. He felt that the world was overall a pretty good place to live in. And going back to G.K. Chesterton's perspective on G.K. Chesterton, I always love this this idea that the Christian is either an extreme optimist or an extreme pessimist. <laughs> He's extremely pessimistic because he knows that the world is is hopelessly cursed. But he is also an extreme optimist in that he finds it absolutely amazing that there is so much good and grace and truth and beauty that God has managed to include in the world, uh, despite its bad state. So, and I tend to be more in tune with my optimistic side anyway. I think that's the best way that Christian storytellers can be an ambassador of, of our beliefs by creating a world, and it may not be a fantasy world, and just be the world of the story, that emulates and captures what you believe as a Christian. I remember talking to some writers back at when I was at Taylor University, Fort Wayne, saying that all writers should take Bible classes because you don't purposely put in a lot of what you say in your book. It just exudes from what you understand the world to be, like mm -hmm. you were saying. And I think if you deal with your personal beliefs consistently, your stories will just exude this sense of whatever it is that you think is important in the world. Mm -hmm. I do think, I, I was thinking this when I was considering the idea of moral universe. I don't think moral universe necessarily includes everything that's about right or wrong. Most books, movies have some sort of right or wrong in it. But if they purposely put out a moral of some sort, like, you know, at the end they chide the person about, oh, you shouldn't have done this, then it becomes almost more of a plot device and not something it can. And not something that's naturally flowing from the world itself. That sometimes character, you know, writers or producers, whoever, impose right and wrong on a story for the sake of conflict or resolution and not because it's a holistic part of the work. Yeah, and, and that can be a very tricky area in that it drives me nuts some very artistic or independent movies or culture that they're so vague about what they're trying to say that you can't decipher it. But on the other hand, you, anytime a character outright says, I don't know about any time, but a lot of times when a character outright says what's supposed to be learned from this story or, you know, what, you know, characters having a trouble dealing with key issue, it, it can easily feel like um, insert message here kind of mentality. <laughs> I think, well, this is, on the other hand, more of the the too vague. There's some shows that I watch, and I don't I don't read enough modern no novels to get this, though I hear most modern novels, if they're literary, can be ambiguous. But sometimes they create moral dilemmas or conflicts simply for 
conflict's sake. Mm, yeah. I, I enjoyed the new Battlestar Galactica series when it was on, but one thing that re- two things annoyed me about it. One is that sometimes I felt like they just purposely threw people into these situations just for to get them as emotionally distraught as humanly possible mm. for the drama of it. And sometimes I couldn't peg down... A lot of more modern shows do this. They want to show every side of the issue, which, you know, I think there's a place for that. But then sometimes you wish it would come down somewhere on, but what do you think is good? But they just Mm. like, I'm going to throw all this and everyone's going to suffer and who knows who's right? No one might be right. Yeah. Which, personally, I don't much enjoy generally. And honestly, I feel the same way about a lot of graphic novels or superhero stories I read. I mean, there's I don't read a lot, granted. And there's a lot of good ones, too. But occasionally I come across something, and this is especially prevalent in the Batman universe, I think, where, like you said, they're just throwing all these awful situations at a person. And I feel like, well, where is this going? You're just doing this because it's dramatic or tragic. And, and there's nothing for me to gain out of this. It's just a bad situation. I sometimes think people, I mean, some, some creators think a froth of emotion or a turmoil emotion equals good storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, and it can. I mean, I won't rule it out. And granted, that's a part of the problem with comic books as an ongoing medium. Their storylines get so complicated and twisted and they just kind of run out of things to do. Well, that's true because you can't, I mean, sometimes if you, you can't have the character progress that much because... If they get redeemed, then well, what's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. I always... Speaking of redeemed, because I think redemption is one of these big moral universe issues that used to show up, you know, in any, not any, many classic books pre-1900. You have this sense of redemption and striving for, you know, the black, it wasn't just good and evil as in the evil guy kills people and the good guy doesn't. But this, this striving to be a better person, I mean, anything by Dickens or Dostoevsky or Victor Hugo or Hawthorne or Melville has very heavy overtones of a moral universe, I think. And I think much of that died off come 1900-ish. Now, I I can't prove this. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, I I can think of some examples of that. I'm thinking of Count of Monte Cristo, which is, you know, basically a revenge story about a guy getting revenge for being unjustly locked away and stolen from his love. Throughout most of it is about him intricately weaving this this plot in order to get revenge but in the end as he's going through with it 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 suddenly becomes wait a minute what am i what am i what have i become because i'm actually involving these other people's lives these very innocent people's lives that are you know loosely connected to to my enemies but i'm i'm gonna ruin it in pursuit of my revenge and it becomes a quite different tale even though in the end, justice gets paid to those who had wronged him. At the same time, he it is a redemption story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I, you know, sometimes I miss that that aspect. One of my favorite fantasy series, which is going to end finally next year, I think, <laughs> is Wheel of Time. And I would argue that Wheel of Time has a... All the characters are constantly wrestling with, what are the consequences of my actions? The main character, you know, he, has, he wants to save the world, or he has to save the world, but he doesn't want to become a monster while doing it. You know, and I don't think there has to be nice, neat answers. I don't think that they even have to be, you know, some sort of, I guess maybe not even answered at all, but at least the fact that as much as the, as the political world or the social world or the economic world, that the moral world should be a, a, a coherent, consistent element of 
really good stories. Hmm. Even even pulpy stuff. I'm going to be, you know, even if it's just like, you know, comic booky sort of stuff, like you said, graphic novels, even if it's, you know, something very loose, I think you have more of that Muppet idea that friendship is good, lying's bad, you know, kind of more low-key sort of stuff. It's certainly, at the very least, by thinking about those things, you're adding a deeper element to your story than just basic action or comedy or or what have you. Another example that that came to mind is actually a webcomic that I told you about once. You remember Order of the Stick? Oh, yeah, yeah. Order of the Stick is basically a webcomic based off of a just very complicated role-playing game. A big part of how a player develops his character for that game is related to how does that character act? What's his moral alignment? Is he lawful good? Is he chaotic good? He doesn't really follow the rules, but he tries to be good anyway. Is he evil? Is he uh, chaotic neutral? He doesn't go by the law and doesn't really care if he's good or bad or not. All these different things. And so this was reflected pretty well in this webcomic. And how a character acts has direct influence on his standing within the world at large. There's a lot in the strip I don't agree with. The validity of some of the perspectives are kind of in equal standing in some cases. But it is it is very interesting to see how, and it's, it's a very funny comic too, but it's got a lot of action, it's got a lot of variety in it, and just the fact that watching how a character's decisions takes part in this multi-moral universe makes it a very interesting story. And uh, comics remind me, I was thinking two comic strips, newspaper comic strips that I would argue have, you know, became famous partly because they took, they include a moral dimension, would be Peanuts mm-hmm. and uh, Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> That's true. Both both very funny comics, not, you know, they're not deathly serious or anything, but I to the know. characters it, it matters. You know, it's the world is not just emotion and ins and outs. It's not just behaviorism or rewards for doing whatever, just flippant, you know, flippant humor. It's humor rooted in something. Yeah, I agree. There's something about both comic strips that really resonate with someone. And oftentimes it is, both comics can be very philosophical sometimes. And I think that really connected with people a lot, especially since I think there's something also about both of it coming from a child's perspective. I think we often all when we look at the universe at large, even as grown-ups, I think we all feel kind of small and look back on... We kind of revert as a childhood sense of trying to figure things out. And I think that's a great way that both Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes really uh, explore the moral universe. And I think I think despite you know our sense of secularization and relativism, I think people are looking for a bigger... A sense of what's out there bigger, you know... They they want a the bigger world. sense of universe. Yeah, they want the world to be more about what we just what we can see and touch. Even though technically science tells us, at least you know, secular science tells us that's all there is. We want there to be more. In modern trends, and at least in young adult fiction, and I would assume in the same in adult fiction, is moving much more toward supernatural. Oh yeah. Areas, you know, you got werewolves and vampires and angels, and they're all over dead the place. People and yeah, because people. They don't want to live in a materialistic world. We've tried it. It's It doesn't work. Or at least it's not interesting enough. Now we just got to see if we can find some morals that people identify with. You know, that they feel like, okay, this makes this makes emotional sense to me. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing I want to add before we wrap this up. I think this, one of the best things you can do if you believe in your worldview and is people don't want to be argued to logically in a story. Yeah. They don't want to be, feel like they're being taught. 
Mm-hmm. But if you make them emotionally feel like the heroes are good and the bad guys are bad emotionally, they'll connect to the decisions of the good guy emotionally. Which is not to say that you can't – not to ultimatum say you can't have you know logical arguments in your story. Like quick example that came to mind was Uncle Diggory in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe who has goes into that whole tirade when Susan and Peter are trying to decide what, whether to believe Lucy or not. And he goes into this whole tirade about logic. Why don't they teach logic in the schools? And, <laughs> yeah. and starts to logically you know show them why it was very possible that Lucy had entered into another world. I think things like that can give your readers pause or your viewers or whatever. Again, you don't want to go heavily into that, but just to say that there's something... There's some serious thought behind what we're saying here, and it's not just emotion, even though, like you said, storytelling is a very emotionally driven medium. Well, and I, I completely agree with you. I, I'm a big proponent of logic. Well, you are a part mathematician. Yeah. So now I think filmmaking is much more emotional than writing from than books. I think books can get away with logical arguments. Very true. At a larger extent than you can in the movie. But I guess also logically you want the, the more universe make logical sense if you know, one thing's bad and one thing's good, and the reader reads that, they might just be like, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And just while I throw an example, I did think, you know, Trigun is one of those, you know, a lot of the good anime that come over from Japan. And I don't know if it's because Japan was never as materialistic in their worldview. They've always been much more spiritual. Mm-hmm. Or maybe just the good anime happened to be this. But, you know, like Evangelion, Trigun, Full Metal Alchemist, I mean, Cowboy Bebop, all have this wrestling um, nature to it. Yeah, and I think from my understanding, Japan has always been a very spiritual. They're they're fascinated with all kinds of spiritual ideas. The problem is that they don't really hold any one idea higher than another. In a sense, they believe that I can. I mean, Shintoism is all about having multiple gods. So, yeah, multiple worldviews that contradict each other is completely normal for them. Yeah, I think I remember when I was there back in '97 that they were talking. It was a very sing. What's the word? Sing. Synchron. When you combine lots of stuff, I can, I forget the word now. Syncred. Syncretic. I don't know. Synthetic. <laughs> it's not synthetic. It's, it's the same base word. You know that they just take this and this and this and throw it together. Religion. Right. Syn- synchronous. So. No, that's not right. Anyways. It makes me think more of keeping in sync time. That's true. So, so that uh, our faithful listeners is our philosophical story school for the week. <laughs> we won't always do philosophical ones, but we think it's good to touch now and then. Definitely, definitely. And we'll probably be exploring this a little bit more in some of the segments to come, perhaps. So, perhaps, yes. We don't really know. What, I don't know what Tim's going to talk about. Yet, so. <laughs> so, next up is Soundtrack. I guess I will set up soundtrack today because I have to admit, I stole the soundtrack choice from Nick, basically. Nick was trying to figure out something that related to moral universe and stuff in uh, some songs, and he came up with this one, and I'm like, oh, yes, I love this song. And it's true, I really love this song a lot, so I kind of stole it from him, sorry. <laughs> There's multiple reasons I love this track. For one, it's from Final Fantasy IX, which is... One of my favorite games, one of my favorite soundtracks by the legendary Nomu Uematsu, who is like the John Williams of video games. And the title of the track is called The Rose General. Wait, or is it Roses of May? Roses of May is the original track. 
uh, from the game. But this remix is called The Rose General. Remixed by an artist named Kate the Great 19. That's her screen name anyway. And there's lyrics to this, which is different from our other soundtracks, typically. And it tells the story of a character from the game called Beatrix. She is a female general that has to wrestle with trying to uphold her vow of fealty to her queen, although the queen has basically gone mad and is waging war against the other nations as she tries to seek power, even though the other nations haven't really done anything to her nation at all. So Beatrice has to come to terms with whether she must fulfill her vow and service to the queen or go against what she feels is, is right. Very interesting dilemma in the game and in the song, which I think is beautifully captured and very kind of Celtic woman spirit. So this is the Rose General. Trail in 
It is a fabulous song. Yeah. And if you enjoy that, Kate the Great 19, which I have to say, I think she must have gotten her name from Nate the Great, which makes her all that much awesome. Because <laughs> I love the Nate the Great books growing up. But she's got some other really nice medieval kind of world sounding songs. So if you enjoyed that, you may want to look her up. So let's see. Next is a project update. So, Tim, did you want to give us an update on what you're doing there in film school? Well, unfortunately, it's not terribly different from my last my <laughs> last report. Uh, I was a little too optimistic, I guess, last time we did project update in that well, let's just say I had an assistant that was syncing audio for the spring film that had got busier than she expected. And with me being busier than I expected, having because I have two part-time jobs now. And yeah, so it's still coming along, but we're still syncing audio. The rough cut is about a third of the way through, and hopefully it will be much farther along by the time this podcast actually comes out next week. That'd be good. Yeah. How about you? I know you've got something very big coming up now. Uh, yes. Uh, this <laughs> began this week. I've been trying to get all my ducks in a row because next week, starting November 1st, which I guess is a Monday, I start National Novel Writing Month, and I'm going to write a comic booky action adventure story uh, that I'm tentatively naming Buckethead. <laughs> I hope that really isn't the superhero name. <laughs> no, I don't. I think it's more of a. I don't think that's what they call him. Well, I think that's what uh, Molly calls the main character. Oh, okay. <laughs> but not his official name, no. And I might change the title, but I need I need something to work with, and it stuck in my head. Okay. But anyways, the goal is to write 50,000 words during the month of November. You can see me struggle with it during uh, at my website, uh, worksofnick.com. It's on the sidebar of the website, of our Dear Old Trains website. I haven't thought through too much. I, I got a, a plan in my head, like last week, and then I haven't really thought about it this week. This week, I got Squire in a semi-finalized state. So that my wife can read it. She's she's about halfway through it. Cool. My sister's going to read it. I think Nathan Marshan, who was with us last week, is going to read it. And give me a sense, not nitpicky stuff, but just a sense, does it work? Does the ending work? That sort of stuff. I've got about 16 chapters of it on my laptop here that I will get to sometime. Well, hopefully you're, soon. you're busy in school. <laughs> I know, but it's like it, each time I think about it, it's like, oh, I really want to read that. I've read, like, I think 10, 12 chapters of it before, a long time ago. been wanting to read more ever since. If you have access to a Nook or a Kindle, I can give you a EPUB version of it. That's what, how my wife's reading it. Uh, I don't believe in e-books. If, you know, instead, it's nicer than reading on the computer, if nothing else. Oh, true. But, I mean, I do so much stuff with my laptop anyway. I'm used to it by now. No, that's true. <laughs> um, let's see. And I'm also, well, they're also reading it to give me ideas of where to send this thing. Because I, I have a horrible sense of the market. <laughs> um, yeah, you should, should definitely ask Summer about that. I mean, your, your sister runs a bookshop. Exactly. And she goes to these book conventions. So she's going to read and give me some, hopefully some hints. Natasha reads a lot of young adults. And I think mm. Squire will probably be sold that way. I also, String Fred is now out, out of copyright. That's my first, or Trouble in the Horizon, the first novel I ever wrote. Oh, really? So you're not bound to publish America anymore? No. So I'm, I'm looking into places to maybe republish it. And if I get that done, I think that'll really kickstart my uh, writing of the third book. Very cool. So I'm trying to get all this stuff done before next week. Well, you're not going to get published before next week, you realize. Well, no, but I mean, I got Squire out so they can read it during November. Okay. Uh, I might try to get a submission for Trouble on the Horizon out before November. I got half-written book proposal. I feel like you should focus on Squire first, though, because I feel like, I mean, it's hard for me to say because I haven't read Squire in a while, but I feel like Squire is more marketable. Well, I agree. I have this uh, kind of niche market. Well, not niche, but a place that takes this sort of stuff. 
that I've looked at for a long time and writing a book proposal for Stern Fred is easy because I wrote one before, so I'm just changing some of the oh, I see. bits and pieces. It's not it's not pressing, but I had some free time at work. Okay. So that's what I'm doing. Oh, I also wrote a man has been busy this week. <laughs> I wrote a six page uh script for my brother and I do videos with the youth at our church and a Christmas script. Ah. So So that'll be coming up. That should be coming up, yep. I saw some of the things that The Ten, which is the name of your little film group, I saw some of the things that The Ten posted on Facebook and the little, like, ten-second messages. Yeah. Those are cute. It'll be fun because there's actually a story that connects all of them together. Oh, really? When you edit that together. I mean, it's it's very roughly put together because this is a lot of new kids, and we didn't do a lot of planning necessarily. We did a lot of stuff on the fly, but there is a storyline that connects them all. Oh, fun. Hopefully someday in the next couple of weeks we'll post that. Very cool. All right. Uh, our next segment is our take on tales. Well, Tim, since you were, you were, I think, watching something right before we decided to record, <laughs> why don't you start? Okay, sure. Yeah, I've been watching a new ABC series called No Ordinary Family. And I said something about this on Facebook, and I thought I might like to go in a little more into it. They've only released five episodes so far, so, I mean, it's hard for me to say any hard and fast proclamations about it. But I've actually really been enjoying it so far. It's, I mean, if you hear the sound of it, it sounds kind of like a mix between The Incredibles and Heroes. And that's not far off, And but they do that kind of mix very well. It's about a family that... Together, they survive a plane crash, and they each acquire superpowers. The dad is really buff and strong and able to withstand. He's able to jump long distances. He's basically the Hulk, except without the rage factor. And the mom has got super speed, so she's pretty much the Flash. The teenage daughter, she can read minds, and the teenage son got, like, super genius or something. Doesn't sound like a superpower much, but if you think about how much trouble Lex Luthor tended to give <laughs> the Justice League, it can be pretty pretty good. But it's been interesting because it's like heroes in the sense that these people are trying to figure out how to use their new powers and whether whether they want to, you know, how much they want to be normal and how much they want to actually take advantage of them. Dad, who's been a police sketcher for a long time, he actually goes into a very amateurish crime fighting with the help of a DA friend of his, which is amusing because he's always kind of just skirting vigilantism and uh, he's obviously not very good at it so far but but it's interesting to see this idea carried out with one set of people at one place over a period of several weeks essentially unlike the incredibles where some of them had been had powers before they became a family and so they were comfortable with it none of these people are comfortable with it and yet they're a family we've been watching natasha and i i have not seen the newest episode we usually watch it on sunday after it airs i tend to watch it online just because it it's easier for me to fit around my schedule and and honestly the picture quality is better in my laptop than a tv <laughs> strange that we've come to that place where it's easier this it looks better streaming internet and does actually watching it on your old sd tv but that, nice that's where we're at we've enjoyed it, but i guess both of us been sort of Feeling like parts of it don't click quite right. I don't know if you feel the same way. I'm kind of on the fence some days. I mean, for the most part, there's a lot about it that I enjoy. I enjoy seeing... The, the characters feel pretty real to me. Mm -hmm. The mom is kind of an issue, I think, in that 
she's a scientist that is exploring how they got these powers. She's studying it, but she's very kind of, she acts very prohibitive of how the rest of her family uses them. And I think it's kind of, I mean, after much convincing, she was okay with, well, somewhat okay with her husband doing this crime fighting thing. But I mean, like, I, I guess I can see how, you know, she'd be very protective that way. But at the same time, she doesn't seem to have any kind of hesitation about using her own powers. It seems a little <laughs> hypocritical to me. It, yeah, I get that. Sometimes you're like, no, you guys are all getting on each other's cases, but you then just go do what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Natasha's one of her big thing is they're, they all have superpowers. She wants them to get together and do something with the powers, and it drives her nuts that they are constantly trying not to use their powers. Well, see, that's the thing that often bothered me about heroes, and I'm not certain why it doesn't bother me as much in this case. I don't know if it's because I've gotten used to this idea of this is how some people would do it. Some people would just be too scared to go out and, and do much because it'd be. Well, I mean, if you think about it, it would be a completely, it would completely change your life. Yes, yes. The reason we love the comic book superheroes is that's what they do. They completely alter their lifestyles when this thing happens to them. But at the same time, nothing traumatic has actually happened to these people enough to make them feel like they have to go do this. I mean, Peter Parker loses Uncle Ben and feels like he was partly responsible for it. Bruce Lee... or. Bruce Lee. <laughs> Bruce Lee. <laughs> Bruce Wayne goes out and beats Batman because his parents were killed. And there's really nothing keeping this family from living a very ordinary lifestyle, aside from the fact that they have superpowers. Well, I mean, I, I get that. You know, and I agree that how they're acting in the very realistic way you would act. You know, you'd be like, well, we want to be normal. And, you know, they weren't necessarily a very close family to begin with. They had problems. True. They were dysfunctional with. beforehand. My wife says she was watch a a superhero show because she wants them to be superheroes, <laughs> uh, which I get. And I guess, you know, sometimes I feel that you wish they would move some of the characters. A, I mean, it's only been four episodes for me. Yeah. So maybe it's too early to complain. Move some of this for things forward a little bit. You know, the father tries hard and every time he just does a horrible job. For the very first fight with like the teleporting guy was really cool. Yes, and that's my other thing, is that it sounds like there's going to be this whole extra danger bad guy plotline, but we get like three minutes at the end of every episode about it. Maybe this fifth one looked like it was going to be a little more... You get a little bit more in this last... That's what I was watching right before I... And since I know you're watching it now, which I didn't know beforehand if you were or not, but since... I won't talk too much about what happened. But yeah, you, you do get a little bit more of the overarching story. But again, in a sense, I don't mind that as much. And... I don't know if that's because I'm so busy with my other life that I'm like, I'm enjoying just watching it for what it is rather than looking for an ongoing story. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not trying to complain. I just, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate kind of. I know. I know. On the other hand. <laughs> I totally see where you're coming from and I totally see where some of the critics come from about it kind of going in a, at a very slow pace they're playing it a little just a little bit differently and tv shows really have to hold themselves back a lot in in some ways especially if you you know something as special effects heavy as a superhero show would be they kind of have to hold themselves That's back true. a bit but i do have to say that i've really enjoyed how uh especially the daughter and the son's storylines how they've been trying to explore it in their in their high school world mm-hmm has, has seemed very uh, realistic and interesting to me. It drives me nuts that J.J., at least throughout what I've watched, it hasn't told his parents yet. You just feel really uncomfortable when he constantly lies to him 
Yeah. But I think that's what they want you to feel. Yeah, yeah, they want you to feel that way, that this is a problem. And Doc Jensen over at the Entertainment Weekly site had an interesting theory for a while that, that J.J. was going to become one of the villains of the series, that he was headed toward the the bad road. And I'm not so sure that's the case, but it's a very interesting perspective. Yeah, that would that would be very intriguing. So you recommend people trying it out? I recommend people give it a go, in part just because I try to support just about anything that's different from the norm. And, I think that's, that's a, good, a good plan. And there's just too much on TV these days that's the same. Even things that aren't perfect, like No Ordinary Family isn't perfect, but I've, I've enjoyed it. And, and, and if you enjoy superhero stories, then there's a chance you might too. And I, and I do agree that it seems like they're getting their footing more and more as they go along. Yeah. Yeah, and and I don't think, based on this last episode, I don't think that they're going to try to stay in the same place for too long. Heroes kind of have that problem where characters be running around, but it feels like the story wasn't actually going anywhere. They were just biding time <laughs> until the season finale. I don't feel like that's the case here. They're, they move through the overarching story with the secret bad guys slowly. But it's it's there, so it, it moves forward as much as it feels it needs to. Mm-hmm. You said you had uh, something you watched just last night that uh, you were interested in talking about. Yeah, I had an hour where it was just me here. Phil was asleep and Tasha was gone. I'm like, I have an hour. I've been wanting to watch an episode of X-Files that I remember loving when I first watched it. It was one of my favorite episodes of X-Files. It's from season six. It's called Triangle. I was a big X-Files fan. I didn't watch the last two seasons when I went to college, but... X-Files was some really good TV and some absurdly creative episodes. Uh-huh. I tend to gravitate towards shows that keep trying to push the limits of what they do, which I guess is why I like Lost, mm-hmm. why I like X-Files, other shows. But this show, this episode takes place in the Bermuda Triangle. Mulder, it, there's this, uh, I think it's the Queen Anne. It's a luxury liner that disappeared in 1939, and then it reappeared, so he tried to go to it. And he ends up in 1939 with Nazis boarding this British ship. Wow. What's so f- fascinating about it is, and I didn't, I guess I didn't realize it to such an extent until I rewatched it now, is that you got you got your, your teaser at the beginning, which is the first, like, five minutes, and you got your tag at the end, which is the last, you know, the conclusion. But you got four acts, and each act is basically one long shot. Oh. Well, I'll, I'll rephrase that. It's... The imitation of one long shot. Uh-huh. I remember reading back then, I didn't understand at the time, that Chris Carter, who created the X-Files and wrote and directed this episode, said he was highly inspired by the movie Rope by H- Alfred Hitchcock. Uh-huh. If you've seen that movie, I know you have, Tim. Yeah, yeah, I really like that movie. It's a great movie, if you haven't seen it. The technical idea behind it was to try to make a movie that was one take. That was one long, the camera never cut. Now, there are cuts in it because the move, the cameras back then could only hold, what, like 12 minutes of film or... Something like that. I think there's like that. I think there's four cuts in the entire movie of Rope. Four cuts. And a lot of them are hidden by, like, you know, you're passing some guy's back and it darkens and they cut it there. Yeah. And some of the same tricks end up in this X-Files episode. Which some people may say that Rope, it makes Rope feel like it's too staged. But, I, I don't know, I was fascinated by the story, and which is based on a play. That's another case of a story that definitely involving morality a lot. It's a very oh, intriguing story. Yeah, it's a lot about guilt. Yeah, yeah. And I, I personally thought, slight sidetrack, that Rope, it's about these guys who uh, try to commit the perfect murder and hold a dinner party with the body of their dead friend in the chest where they're serving the food. And so I think the camera never breaking and the kind of, much of the dialogue kind of 
just chit-chat sort of stuff. But I think what works is that it's like they're talking on one level, and the entire plot of guilt is on the bottom level. Mm. By never breaking, you got this. It's like you're right there at the party, and it's it's just you grow more and more uneasy as you watch. Yeah, and Jimmy Stewart's character slowly figures it out, and it's it's just fun to watch the pieces kind of click together in his brain. And so it's certainly it's certainly a movie worth watching. But the the X Files does the same thing. So you have this whole section, and you know, just beautiful scenes on this. By beautiful, I don't mean like gorgeous, but just how it's, you know, they're on this luxury liner, yeah. this long, you know, through the hallways and to the old radio and the Nazis walking around and, and then they go into the ballroom and so, you know, and one of the Nazis kills someone and they die, you know. It's totally this. okay to call something like that beautiful in the, in the cinematic terms. Yes. That's what I'm in the cinematic. Yeah. We talk about that in one of my lighting classes that it's just beautiful in the sense of the way the light hits it and the way the, the arrangement of things and yeah. It's aesthetically pleasing. Exactly. But there's just a lot of moving pieces. It's a very different, you don't see this sort of thing on TV. It's like movie style TV. Mm. And X-Files always had this really high production quality. Yeah. You never felt like you were on a studio. You always felt like they were in the middle of some podunk town at the worst inn you ever, you know, you'd ever seen. Uh-huh. But I don't know, it's just a, it's a fascinating style. And when I watched it back in 98, I think originally, my favorite part was at the end there's ballroom fight and the swing music starts going then then they do the split screen between the 30 1939 and the 1990, I think, 8, where Scully's in the time when the ship's all old and Mulder's in the time where the ship's all new and they're crossing each other's paths through the split screen. And it's oh, just... Awesome. It's just really cool. I, I mean, like just very that. creative stuff. It's on Netflix if you want to watch it. It's called Triangle Season 6 of X-Files. Watching it the second time, I didn't have the same overwhelming reaction to it because it wasn't brand new. But I still was like... Man, this is a really good episode. I should mention there is also a large component of Wizard of Oz in this episode. Really? Because when he's in 1939, all the normal characters he sees in his normal time show up as Nazis. Or no, Scully is this like singer in, or not singer? She's in the ballroom as some lady, <laughs> and the cigarette smoking man is like the head of the Nazis, and uh-huh. you know his superior in the FBI is this other Nazi and. In the tag, when when it ends, he's like, and you were there, and you were there? I mean, in very tongue-in-cheek sort of way. Right, right. (laughs) So it's really clever also to see kind of the parallels between Scully's plotline, which is in modern day, and with all these same characters, and Mulder's plotline, which is in Nazi times, and with all the same characters. So it's a really clever, well-done, kind of artsy hour TV. Uh, that sounds that, that sounds really fun. That... It, it was really fun. And it's a good one to watch if you haven't seen much X-Files. I mean, you don't need a lot of background, per se. Sure, sure. So, good one to just kind of jump in the middle of the season and you felt like watching. Yeah, exactly. Sounds kind of Doctor Who-esque, in a, in a sense, too. It, it was, yeah, I can, yeah, it kind of was, actually, now that you say that. I mean, the artistic style of X-Files is so much starker that I never even considered Doctor Who. But, yeah, that's true. But you're, you're, you're right. Maybe more Torchwood, then. <laughs> That's probably true from what I've seen at Torchwood. Now, d- did you see the events this last week? I have not watched the event because I've been so busy doing other things. Okay, there's actually a, re- a pretty cool long shot toward the end of that episode, too, that uh, be on the lookout for. I didn't realize what was going on at first. I mean, I was watching characters you know doing what they were doing but as it went on i was like oh wow this isn't cutting this is really cool that they stage this this way so you'll you'll enjoy that i think 
and just for our viewers, another if you like long shots, you have the longest stay cam shot I ever saw was Long Bach. It's oh, a martial really? arts movie. Oh Did yes, yes, that? yeah, yeah. Is this is this it's like this ten minute fight scene up staircases and through rooms, all one steady cam shot. Yeah, yeah. And the movie itself is not very good. Um, <laughs> well, I mean the movie I is... mean for a fighting movie, it's it's a blast for the fight scenes. Oh yeah. It's got really nice I mean, I don't remember the story was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> but they had some of the most memorable fight scenes that I'd seen in a while. Uh, yeah, I mean, just really cool setting for for set pieces for fighting. It's just Ong Bak. It's a uh, Taiwanese. Um, that sounds right. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and it uses Muay Thai as yeah. its uh, martial art form. Pretty unique. Another great long shot example is from the movie Serenity. Do you remember that? I don't. I remember the movie. It's actually the like the opening scene is, and you may not have been aware of it because it 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 feels like it cuts several times within it. But if you sit and watch it, it's actually one long take with the captain starting in the helm, and then you know they're about to crash, and then going through. They actually walk through like the entirety of the ship, which is all one set basically. And as he's talking to different crew members and about what's going on, and basically you know updating the audience who never watched Firefly about who these people are and what's going on and that kind of stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah, I don't. Rem- I I very vaguely remember that. Our professor actually showed uh, brought that up in class. I'm like, man, I need to go watch Serenity again. It's nice. it's been a long time. And finally, for our penultimate section, Crackpot's Corner. Crackpot's Corner, where we discuss ideas that are just ridiculous, but we like to talk about anyways. Shall I start? Yeah, I go for it. I think it's your turn. Okay, I didn't have much this week, so I decided to fall back on the one I thought of when we first introduced the idea of Crackpot's Corner when I was brainstorming. I didn't say it on the podcast. I remember back in high school, I was I was coming up with TV shows constantly in my head in high school. Ah, uh, yes. And I remember trying to plan out, a, I think it would have been an animated version of Final Fantasy VI, because that was big at the time, I guess. And the only reason I bring this up is because I remember trying to plot out the first episode and how you would write it and how you would switch events around to make it more dramatically important. And I remember thinking, I would want to call the first episode The Woman and the Beast. Ooh. Wait, The Woman in the Beast? And. The... And the Beast. The Woman and the Beast. So not Beauty and the Beast, but Woman and the Beast. Very much referring to Revelations. Oh, okay. Where you have that whole section of the beast and the woman, and it's very apocalyptic. And I just felt like tying biblical image to, you know, the world basically ends in Final Fantasy VI, halfway through. Mm -hmm. And then you have this very Antichrist character in Kefka, if you really want to push it to that limit. Uh-huh. I don't know. That was just I, I used to plan out uh, Final Fantasy VI episodes. You had great characters, but the trick would have been to fill in those characters' dialogues with each other during all their traveling. Yeah, and all the like random. You have to include the random encounters in some some creative way. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Minor crackpot corner. Just an old old memory of mine that I remember very vividly playing out the first episode. Every time I listen to, there's a remix called Terra in Black. <laughs> on OC Remix. And every time I listen to that, I think about this idea that you've you've told me before. Because I think that would be a perfect theme song for it. And Oh, that also reminds me. I also would imagine the the Devil's Lab theme, which is the Magitek Armor Factory. Uh-huh. Even the original MIDI version or whatever it is. I always 
would imagine what it would look like on the TV screen, where you started the clanging hammer intro really soft as they're walking through the tunnel, sneaking in, and then when they look, you have this panoramic view of all these things being made, and the music would just... Because I was always trying to incorporate all the original music in this. TV oh, yeah. Show. Oh, yeah. You you would have to, because that's got an awesome soundtrack. It has a fabulous soundtrack. And I can kind of imagine the... Because, like you said, the world ends halfway through the game. And so I imagine the first season would be up until that point, and then the second season would be the rest of it. If you, you know, if you could get away with only doing two seasons, which in anime you probably could. You probably could, yeah. I think that'd be fun to to write up. That'd be some fan fiction. I'd, I would indulge in that. I know some people, I've seen people trying to write scripts for a Chrono Trigger, which would make a fabulous either miniseries or movie. It's very compact. Mm -hmm. I think Square got on their case about it. Oh, but, really? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's too bad. Well, I guess mine is really not that long either, so maybe this will be a mini Crackbots corner this time around. We'll see. And this is a really wacky idea, but... <laughs> How dare it be wacky! <laughs> the idea is basically this. Choose your own adventure, the movie. The idea I had was that it's like the Choose Your Own Adventure books, you know, where you read through and it's supposed to be you're the character in the book and, and then it presents you with a choice and then if you want to do one choice, you flip the page, whatever, and if you flip another choice, you flip the page, whatever. Well, there's a couple ways you do this. One, with DVD technology, you know, you could easily do this sort of thing where you're watching a movie and, you know, you come to a place where it pauses and then you have to select a button and then it would go to some wherever else on the DVD and show you the consequences of what happens to... It wouldn't necessarily be the audience's perspective in the movie like a like a Universal Studios ride. That'd just be kind of silly it's for a, a full-length feature. <laughs> It'd be kind of fun to see, you know, well, let's take the character in this direction and see what would happen if this happened and stuff like that. And then if you really wanted to expand it, if you actually wanted to play it in a theater, you would have to give the entire audience like some sort of voting devices, you know, kind of like what they would do for the audience for who wants to be a millionaire. Ask the audience, then the whole audience votes and whichever, whatever the poll says at the... Uh, They'll go with that clip from the movie. I think that would be fun. And especially if you made it in such a way where the choices weren't nonsensical, like in some of the later Choose Your Own Adventures, where like you decide to go on a holiday and you get hit by, you know, and you die. That always really threw me off when I first started reading those. And I'm like, what? I, I died? I can't. This is a kid's <laughs> book. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that would be exciting, especially if you had like, you know, really good production quality and the choices were not necessarily don't do like that freeze frame sort of like is he gonna jump on the dragon or not but you know like maybe between scenes you know like the scene ends and then oh that's interesting so it'd be very smooth maybe the question would come in in the subtitles or something although that could be distracting or or maybe even have the question happening before the choice happens so that everyone can vote so there's no there is a seamless transition that could be. Like maybe a minute before the choice has to be made. Yeah. You make the choice. You know, you have enough information to know it's going to be something or other. Right, right. So I guess it could give it away a little bit. Like, oh, so he's going to have to decide to jump off the bridge or kiss the girl, huh? I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, if you had a choice like that, I guess. Could spoil it. I mean, you could do it in such a way that it wasn't spoiler, and you could just make it so you don't even notice the pauses. It could be. And it could be an issue of maybe what they think of the character. Do you think this guy is a coward when it comes to dating, or do you think he is going to go for the girl with all of his heart? Well, you know what would be really good? And they, I think a lot of Choose Your Adventures were this way to begin with, or at least a lot of interactive fiction is, early ones should start as mysteries. Oh, so it kind of teaches you, you know, what do you want to investigate next, maybe. That could be, although that... I mean, it wouldn't be as much fun, I guess, but it'd be a good way to try it out. Yeah, yeah. Making it a mystery, actually, it might be asking the audience to do quite a bit more. Oh, that's... 
<laughs> I mean, you're, you're, that's true. It, it makes it seem a little bit more like a, a game or a point and click. Well, maybe not point and click. Oh, that's true. I guess you don't really want that that perception. Yeah. Just I'm just going with the idea of this could be different ways to tell a story or how the story might go. I think that'd be great. I mean, because after 3D, this is the only way you have to go. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> that or smell, smell-o-vision. Yeah, smell-o-vision. The mystery thing could be a fun way to do it, but I think it'd be it'd be a different beast in a sense. Yeah, I, I think it would be... Uh, I like your idea a lot. I would like to try that. It'd be interesting. I, I've always been interested with the idea of bringing the viewer more into the story. And, and there's another Crackpots idea that I'll have to share sometime. You know, Tim, <laughs> here's what we should do sometime. We should make a choose your own own podcast. <laughs> Whoa! Where we have different different uh, topics we talk about depending on what they choose. <laughs> you know how much work that would be. <laughs> you know, would they'd all have to be like one minute? Like, do you want Nick to insult Tim? Then press this button. <laughs> if you want Tim to go off a tangent on Star Wars, press this button. <laughs> oh, for pointless reminiscence about old projects, press here. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be crazy. Oh man, that's yeah, that's very crackpotty. Well, I guess we might as well uh, wrap this up. Then. Yep, I think we're trying to be a little more disciplined today, which is good. This is this is good. We're trying to get these things to about an hour. Yeah, or maybe slightly less. Yeah, maybe. I'll introduce our second soundtrack. Tim, go ahead and give him contact info. Okay, just to remind you that if you want to email us about anything that we've talked about today, you can feel free to do that at our email address, derailedtrains at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to leave us a comment, feel free to do so on our website, derailedtrainsofthoughts.blogspot.com. Or if you really want to go out of your way, you can go to Nick's Works of Nick Hayden page, at either worksofnick.com or on, it's on Facebook. You just search for Works of Nick Hayden and you can do it that way. A lot of ways to contact us so you have no excuse for not doing it. Exactly. My soundtrack this time, I decided to pick a style that was completely and utterly different than Tim's. It doesn't really connect to our theme or anything else. Well, it might. There's lyrics in this one also, but I don't really listen to the lyrics as words. I listen to them as an instrument. Mm. Because I, I enjoy it that way. It's from Final Fantasy VII, not nine. We're, we've got kind of a Final Fantasy theme this week. Yeah, I thought it'd be good to contrast to pick two Final Fantasies on different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. This is by Jovette Rivera, who used to go by DJ Chrono. It's Sid's theme from Final Fantasy VII, and I want to read just his little blurb about what he was going for, which I think will explain some of the kind of schizophrenic nature yeah. of this piece. He said, I wanted to combine the intensity of heavy metal and techno with the energy of hip-hop and breakbeats, with the dramatic and anthemic feelings of classical and opera. Which is like putting every style of music known to man together. <laughs> so I really enjoy this song. I like the energy. It's called The Crossroads. It's remixed by Jovette Rivera, and I hope you enjoy it. So um, this has been fun, Tim. I think that we've had uh, quite a variety of conversations again. I think so. I think so. All right. Well, this is Nick signing out. And this is Tim. Adios. Bye-bye.
Literary School is where we discuss some aspect of writing, filmmaking, storytelling that we think will be interesting and helpful to our... I don't know. I completely butchered that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Try it again. Yeah, yeah, I'm going again. Score. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can... But so this is the outtake. Okay. We We're go. loopy tonight. <laughs> I am loopy tonight. Okay. I didn't think I would be.